This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today, our topic for discussion is going to be Stolen Dreams, the 1955 Cannon Street All-Stars and Little League Baseball Civil War. This is a book written by Chris Lamb. We'll be talking first with Chris Lamb, and a little bit later, we'll have John Rivers, the shortstop of that team, on the show. With that introduction, Chris, after all these years, welcome back to the journal. Well, thank you, Walter. It's it's a real treat to be back on the show with you. So, Chris, tell us about yourself, your first book, which brought you to the journal probably 15 or 16 years ago. Yeah, my first book was, I think, something like, uh, and I'll Be Sober in the Morning, which was a collection of of come back and put down uh, lines from politicians over history. And, and you and I talked about that and, and, and the book produced a lot of laughs and some sales. And now on and off for eight or 10 years, I was working on stolen dreams. Um, the Cannon street all-stars in a little league baseball civil war. And there's not a lot of chuckles in that book. This is a, a very sad book about boys uh, souls who were who were scarred a long long time ago um, and I learned about that when I was at the College of Charleston where I taught for 15 years and then about 10 years ago I had taken the job at at what we call IUPUI here and before leaving I started talking with people I started talking to a friend of mine Steve Hoffe who told me about this story and put me in touch with someone named Gus Holt who had been researching this story and I got to Indianapolis and I couldn't let go of the story because the story is just so it, it's so gripping and it's and, and and it's heartbreaking and eventually it's a redemption story. But it, and so for uh, many years, I've been going back and forth between Indianapolis and and Charleston. Where did you grow up, Chris? I want to get that in and then we get to the book. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and 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 I've. I, I worked for I worked for newspapers for a while, and then I got my PhD in Bowling Green, Ohio, and then I moved from uh, Norfolk, Virginia. I was there for a couple of years, and, and then I went to the College of Charleston in uh, probably 1997. All right, Stolen Dreams. It's the story of African American boys uh, in Charleston. And first of all, you mentioned Gus Holt, who had been sort of chronicling this story. Was he one of the Cannon Street All-Stars? No, he wasn't. He was a couple of years younger, and he knew nothing about it. Nobody knew anything about it. It happened in 1955, and the story had disappeared. Um, and then Gus Holt, he was uh, a racial activist, and he was coaching his kid in, um, in baseball. And his kid was playing for Dixie Youth Baseball uh, League. His kid makes the All-Star team. And, and Lawrence walks into his dad's den and he's got an all-star uniform and it, would, it should make every father just beam with pride. And Gus sees a Confederate flag on his son's baseball uniform. And it was like one of those cartoon characters where their heads blow up. And that's what happened to Gus. And, and that's what got, you know, got, I mean, Gus wanted to know, what is that Confederate flag doing on my son's baseball uniform? And he began researching how it happened. He re, and he researched how Dixie Youth Baseball Baseball uh, basically was founded on the tears of the Cannon Street ball players who had played in Little League baseball, and and then Gus Holt decides, well, I'm, I I I want to bring back all these ball players, and this is 40 years after the event, and Gus says, I want to bring back Little League baseball to Charleston, and he does this, and he's doing all these things, and while he's doing this, his son Lawrence has brain cancer. So he's doing all of these things at once, and is and and it's just he was able to go back and bring back history, and and as an historian, Walter, you you know you've been able to do that, but it's that that is not that is not an easy thing to do. Okay. So then he told this story. I think we need to make a distinction. In 1955, youth baseball in South Carolina was the Little League. Everybody knows about the Little League World Championship in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and what have you. But after 1955, youth baseball in South Carolina was Dixie Youth Baseball, a segregated league, 
but obviously Gus Holt's child was playing in an integrated team in the 21st century, right? Well, he was playing in about 1993, and you're absolutely right. What happened in 1955 is, is Little League Baseball was everywhere, and Little League Baseball uh, prohibited racial discrimination. Well, 1955 comes along, and we have Brown versus Board of Education, and all over the South there is this massive resistance about integration. And, and what my story is about, the Cannon Street All-Stars, Robert Morrison, the president of the Cannon Street YMCA, a black YMCA in Charleston, uh, uh, decides to register his team. And it's the first, this is the first black little league in South Carolina. And he registers his team for a tournament and in 1955, and all hell breaks loose because white adults do not want their kids playing with against a black team and they resist and and they resist and they refuse to play the cannon street all-stars and this eventually leads to what i call little league baseball civil war where all over the former confederacy hundreds of teams pull out of little league baseball and create the segregated league Okay, but by the 1990s, Dixie Youth Baseball was integrated, correct? Oh, cor yes. It, uh, Dixie Youth Baseball became integrated by the 60s. And so it was only segregated for oh, probably less than 10 years. It was integrated as a part of the federal government's civil rights efforts. So, no, yes, it was It was integrated, in a, and Lawrence Holt played for the team, and Lawrence Holt made the all-star team, and, and there were a lot of black players playing in and Dixie Youth Baseball at that time. Okay, but Little League exists in South Carolina today as well, correct? Uh, that's correct, yes. So you've got two two youth leagues. You have two youth leagues. Dixie Youth Baseball is the dominant youth baseball organization in the South. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Robert Morrison at the Cannon Street YMCA. It was segregated. It was black. Charleston, like most other southern cities, all of their public institutions like the Y, the library, they had a white library and a black library. They had a black Y, they had a white Y. The racial lines were clearly drawn. And as you, you mentioned, this is 1955, coming on the heels of the Brown decision calling for the desegregation of public schools and, of course, the connection of the Brown decision to South Carolina, beginning with Briggs v. Elliott in rural South Carolina, had the white community especially on edge. And Morrison creates this team, and I'll let you pick up the story from there. Yeah, Morrison creates the team as a way to confront segregation. And he confronts this, and he does this in 1953. So it's before Brown versus Board of Education. And Morrison's idea is that if I can integrate Little League Baseball, because Little League Baseball prohibits segregation, so they they can't stop me. The Southern teams can't stop me and, and, and still follow the principles of Little League Baseball. So what his idea is, if I can integrate Little League Baseball, then schools can be integrated, parks can be integrated, swimming pools can be integrated, everything can be integrated. And, and, and I'm going to, and I'm going to plant a flag on Little League Baseball. And I, and, and, and this is and this is how I'm going to confront segregation in Charleston. So this was not an accident. I mean, this was a planned move, which actually the political establishment in Charleston called it. Right? Exactly. They thought that they, they they agreed. They thought if if Morrison can integrate Little League Baseball, Morrison can integrate uh, schools and pools and everything else. So we've got to stop him. We we have to draw the white line here. And and so before uh, whites were protesting outside of schools to keep black students from going to schools with their white kids, uh, whites were standing inside the white lines of Little League Baseball, uh, prohibiting th their children from playing baseball with black children. Now, Interestingly, in the South at this time, the Cannon Street All-Stars were having difficulty getting a white team to play. In Florida, 
a white team did in a state tournament did agree to play a black team from Pensacola because the white kids said they wanted to play over the opposition of their parents. Yeah, isn't that something? That, yes, this uh, Orlando team, they were going to play in the state tournament, and the Pensacola team had advanced by forfeit because all the white teams had refused to play them. And they get to the tournament, and the, and, and, and the Orlando team has a vote. And the kids say, let's play them. And the coach, the white coach of this team quit over this vote, over the idea that that the young boys had wanted racial equality. And of course, and then they play the game and the Orlando, uh, the white Orlando team defeats the Pensacola team. But the wonderful thing about this is these uh, these boys from Pensacola know in their hearts they lost because they were not the better team, that the Orlando team was the better team, unlike the Cannon Street All-Stars who never play. Through they don't they aren't able to play a single game because no white little league team will play them. Chris, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Chris Lamb from Indianapolis about his latest book, Stolen Dreams: The 1955 Cannon Street All Stars and Little League Baseball's Civil War. Okay, Chris, let's get back to the scenario in 1955. Morrison enters his team in the state tournament because to get to Williamsport, you go through a state tournament, then there's a regional tournament, in this case in the South, before you get to Williamsport, right? Right. Well, he initially uh, registers his team for a district tournament in Charleston, and all the white teams pull out in protest. Uh, they refuse to take the field, and and they pull out of the tournament, and the Cannon Street All-Stars win by forfeit. And then they advance to the state tournament, 60 white teams in the state tournament. Um, and Little League Baseball tells the white teams, you have to play. You have to play this team because we prohibit racial discrimination. And the white teams say, no, we're not going to play. And then they all pull out. Okay, but th- there was an interesting twist to this. The white leadership of the of the Little League in South Carolina said, well, this is against state law to have them on the same field. Well, the National Little League says, fine, you're going to move to Donaldson Air Force Base where you can't have segregation. But the kids still said, no, I'm not the kids. The adults said, no. Yeah, that, and this is 1955. It's sort of this, you know, the winds of that t- time period. Everybody's sort of caught up, and 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 it's not it's not unlike now, where you have people who are who are caught up on their polar opposites. And what happens is, of course, the the little league baseball says you have to do this. The state says we can't do this. And in the middle of this is a fellow named Danny Jones who was from Charleston and he's this beloved guy who who you know who runs uh, little league baseball and recreation in in Charleston and Danny Jones is caught up in it and Danny Jones is basically is caught up in the politics of it and he has to make a decision whether do I allow integration or or do I lose my job because if he allows integration he's going to lose his job so he has to go along with the segregation idea, the the politics of it, and he then organizes the secession of the of the South in Little League Baseball, and that's after Little League Baseball tells them they have to play, they break away, and then and then they form their segregated organization, and that becomes Dixie Youth Baseball. But as you said in your initial question, uh, the Cannon Street All Stars win by forfeit the state tournament, and they go to the regional tournament. If they win the regional tournament, they go to Little League Baseball and become the first all-black team in the Little League Baseball World Series. And then Little League rules say, though, you have to win on the field. Yeah. Yeah. They, their rules say you have to win on the field and you cannot advance by forfeit. So Little League Baseball, which had up until this point supported the Cannon Street All-Stars and had seemingly done the right thing and it stood up against this segregation. All of a sudden, now they back off and they say, well, our rules are more important than the civil rights of 11-year-old boys. And, and, 
And this story, and well, I think one of the things, this story becomes a national story at this point. Well, the guy who was president of National Little League, a guy named McGovern, says he's really concerned about young African-American kids going to Rome, Georgia to play in a tournament. He's, he's worried about their safety. That's something he says to the national press. There is a question, and in fact, you quote Holt, the guy who resurrected them, said it was a damn blessing they didn't go down there. Um, yeah. I mean, now we're talking death. <laughs> now we're talking all kinds of bad news. And I don't, I've, I've tried to research where the clan, if, if there was a size, there was a sizable clan in Atlanta, which is an hour or so away from Rome. But there is so much unease because at this point, there's a huge uh, KKK rally in Conway in which 1,500 people show up. So there's the rise of the Klan in, in South Carolina. There is so much fear. And, and there's a sense that McGovern made his decision about his bureaucratic decision about rules being rules, that he did it to make sure nothing horrible happened. Well, it's interesting, the words that were used, the Cannon Street Y was trying to force the colored team into the league. It was They were trying to force themselves on the white community. And there was a quotation by Danny Jones, the director of Little League Baseball in Charleston, resigned from Little League Baseball. But he also said there was something much bigger at stake than Little League Baseball. And I'm quoting here. It is just another step to break down the customs of our people and thank God the people of our great state have presented to the nation a united front. Yeah, you know, that's and, and we, we hear this kind of talk now. The longer this story goes on, the more bellicose uh, Danny Jones becomes. But he's he's speaking for a sizable population and he's certainly speaking for the politicians of the South. The the, the governor of Georgia says Armageddon is upon us. If we allow integration in anything, in any playing field, in any sports, uh, 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 the waters of doom will rush upon us and drown us all. Basically, so he, you know, there is this that there is this feeling that the that the argument against integration is so thin that it comes down to that the whole thing is going to fall apart, that South is going to fall apart and fall into the ground if we allow our boys to play a game of baseball against a team of black boys. Part of the fallout was Danny Jones then announced the creation of a segregated youth baseball league, which we have discussed. Initially, they called it the Little Boys League, but they got in a legal problem with <laughs> with that, and it became, of course, the Dixie Youth Baseball. But the story got national legs first in the African-American press with the Pittsburgh and the Baltimore papers. But then it was picked up by papers, small towns, big towns, anywhere Little League Baseball was played. And it, it really made the folks in Charleston, I'm sorry, look pretty foolish. Why are you scared to let your boys go on the field against a black team. Yeah, um, and, and and this is something that probably need, I need to emphasize. In 1955, newspapers in the South or in the North did not write about race relations. They did not write about racial protests. They did not write about uh, racial inequalities. Uh, that didn't come until later. So they, I, I think the reason this story became so big was, as you mentioned, it had to do with black boys being denied a chance to play this innocent game of baseball. And and an awful lot of northern newspapers and even a couple southern newspapers just really criticize the, the, the people of South Carolina and the people of Charleston, you know, for denying this innocent, this innocent thing. We need to remind our listeners that back in the 1950s, baseball really was the national pastime. That was before the days of the NFL and stock car racing and what have you. It was the game. Kids played it everywhere, either organized in Little League or they played it as 
I did growing up, there was a vacant lot, and we played on the vacant lot. So it had universal appeal. The game did. It was apple pie. It was mom and baseball. It's it's interesting. One of the Southern papers that did take up the story was the Raleigh News and Observer, which said that Charleston was sacrificing the dreams of their own kids, white children, because they wouldn't play. Because the Little League then said, if you were playing in a tournament in another youth league, you cannot participate in the Little League Championship World Series in Williamsport. That's right. And in North Carolina, there were integrated tournaments. So so North Carolina, the, the sports editor of the Raleigh newspaper could openly sneer at the people of Charleston and and the and the people of South Carolina by saying we have allowed integration and and the world didn't end. Okay, so the season, at least in terms of playing for the Cannon Street All Stars, is over in 1955 because they can't advance to the regional by forfeit. So then, what happens? Well, then what happens is the the president of Little League Baseball has a second thoughts and he's been he's been humiliated and he's been chastened in, in in newspapers and he says you know i really feel bad about this and he tells the and he tells the Kansas street league why don't you come up here and you can be our guests at the little league world series which sounds kind of not pitiful but 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 not uh, not particularly noble why would these why would these kids want to you know be, you know go 700 miles to watch white kids live out their dreams and but you know, bob morrison sees an opportunity and bob morrison knows that as long as this story's in the news it's doing good for the as you would say the cause it's doing good for integration it's it's publicizing the cheapness of 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 segregation so he decides that he's going to take uh, esau jenkins bus esau jenkins was a civil rights activist who would use that bus uh, to put his life on the line and register blacks to vote and he was going to take the players the 14 players and 10 adults up to Williamsport, 700 miles away, and they were gonna and they were gonna leave late at night because they wanted to drive at nighttime as to not draw attention to the fact of all these black adults and kids in a bus, and and they were gonna go they were gonna go past Conway where the KKK rally had been four days earlier, and they were and they were gonna drive up in this sort of broken down bus. And, and and they get there, and Little League Baseball treats them like kings. All right, before we get there, you talk about the dangers in traveling. But one of the issues, the kids could not – they could not stop at the local gas station going up because of segregation laws. That would have been true in Virginia and North Carolina, or, or food. So their parents packed food that the kids ate on the bus going up. A lot of these kids had never been out of Charleston before, and it was the first time some of them had worn pajamas in their life, which is really sweet. And these 14 kids are sort of are they've been brought together as a team and they're and they're cracking on each other and they're and they're and they're listening to transistor radio. And this is Christmas to them because they they they, they don't fully understand the bigger story that they may think that they're going to play once they get to Williamsport, but I'm not sure that's the case. But yes, I'm. thank you, Walter, for bringing that up. Well, and when they got there, guess what? They were not placed in a segregated hotel. Uh, they stayed with the other league teams, and all of the teams were encouraged to eat together. Oh, and they sit around and they tell stories and they, and you know, when 11 and 12 year olds get together, they, they, they talk about the universal things like grits and they talk about grits with the other teams. And they're amazed because players from California, the California team, they've never heard of grits. And, and this makes a real impression on them. So they, they bond and they, and they really feel, and they really feel good about themselves and, until they go to the game. And when they go to the game, They've got front row seats, and they can play in between games. They can have like a warm-up game, but they can't play in the tournament. Right. They can't play, and they have this practice. 
and the kids, all the kids I've interviewed, I mean, all, all the all the men who are now 80 years old who I've interviewed, tell me about this these practices. And they this practice maybe 10 minutes, and they and they perform really well. And as they're walking off the field, as they're walking off the field, and they've been introduced. They start hearing cheers because this is a national story. Everybody knows the Cannon Street All-Stars and why they're there and why they're not playing. And they hear and they hear fans who are yelling, let them play, let them play. And 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 this makes such a profound impact on these 11 and 12 year olds that, that 70 years later, uh, the players uh, still say, I can hear I can still hear those cheers. And they because they understand. That, that the adults, that the spectators want them to play and they think they should play. And then they get, and then they have seats and they sit behind the uh, uh, home plate and they watch the game and they suddenly realize that they're not going to play and they wonder why they aren't going to play. And they look out over the field and one of the teams in the finals is integrated and they wonder, hey, if, if this team has black players and they can play, why can't we? And they watch the game and they say, and they think to themselves, we're better than either of those teams. And all this, all this disappointment of the past several years washes over them like a flood. And they're, and they're sort of crushed by the realization that no matter how good they are, they will never be good enough in a segregated world. The trip to Williamsport was the first time for this group of, of, of young kids. Fifty years later, the surviving members of that team were asked back, right? Right, and that's because of Gus Holt's efforts. As Gus Holt starts trying to round up these guys and he and he finds the and he finds the coach of the team uh you know ben singleton and he finds the coaches and he's this incredible researcher gus has a high school education but he's he has the attributes of a of of a top researcher he will not let go of this story and so he tracks down the players he tracks down leroy major he tracks down john rivers who by then is a a very successful architect who was a shortstop on the team. And he calls up John Rivers and Gus says, hey, I want to bring you guys together. I, I, I want to take you back to Williamsport. And John Rivers says, and you are who? And so he brings this reunion together. And and then there's a story about it. Gene Sapikoff, the great sports writer of the of the of the Charleston uh, Post and Courier, does a piece for Sports Illustrated. So now, the, the the story is starting to come back. Little League Baseball decides that we did something wrong. Let's fix it. And so Little League Baseball works with the Cannon Street team and brings them back to Williamsport 47 years later in 2002. And they go up in this wonderful in this wonderful bus with air conditioning, and they can stop at any restaurant they want to, and they can eat well, and and then they go out on this old field where they a little league World Series was played, and it's no longer where little league uh, a little league World Series is played, and. And, and they play with a bunch of kids and one of the players hits a home run and he runs around the bases. This man is now in his 50s and he's just bawling because he's so happy to be back and he's having such fun. And then they go to Little League World Series and and, and there's an exhibit about them in the Little League uh, uh, Museum and they go back to the World Series and they're cheered and they're cheered and they're cheered. And Gus Holt is there. Unfortunately, his he wanted to bring his son, but his son had passed away a, a few years before that. But Gus Holt is able to rescue history. He's able to have history come alive. And all of this is really because of, of Gus Holt. Well, and the headline of the story that Gene Sapikoff was writing was Little League's Civil War. And one of the officials of the Little League said it was the worst crisis that the Little League faced in its organization's history. And another league, and another, it might have been that CEO or another one who called the Little League, who called the Cannon Street Little League team the most significant amateur baseball team in history. Thanks to Gus Holt, Gene Sepikoff, to you. These young men have not been forgotten because Charleston does have 
pro baseball, the River Dogs, and every year at a game, the River Dogs acknowledged the Cannon Street team, right? Oh, the River Dogs have been terrific. They There are plaques, there are several plaques about the team. There's one at, at Joe Riley Ballpark where the River Dogs play. And in June, they come back. And this time, uh, John Rivers, who I mentioned, and David Middleton and, and Leroy Major uh, were there and they got to throw out the first ball. And, and it's, it is a, it, it is very meaningful that, the, the, that, that so many spectators want to go over and, and talk to these ball players who are all approaching 80. And the 50th anniversary in 2005, Ted Koppel of Nightline did a feature on them. Yeah, Ted Koppel did. Uh, George Will uh, wrote a column about him. Um, and there are, and and I think that this story, as as Lee Drago, who is a historian at the College of Charleston, says, stories like these scar the souls of black children. There are there are so many other stories out there of black children who were denied their possibility, who were denied their their hopes and dreams, and 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 I don't think that we. That, that we that we really recognize that and and I think we're we're a lot better off as a society if we can go back and study these stories uh, uh, not to criticize the white people of 1955 but to realize the the, uh, the redemptive value of these stories we have talked about Gus Holt who revived the story because when those young boys got back from Williamsport, you say very emphatically, the story went dark. The it, story, it's it's very um, that they had all this publicity, and then the boys are just devastated. And I think you know, for me to understand that, I it's it's difficult for me to put myself in in their skin. But they're devastated, and they get back. They don't know the day they get back, August twenty eighth is the day that Emmett Till, who's not much older than they are, is killed, is tortured and, 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 and lynched. And Emmett Till has just turned 14. John Rivers is getting ready to turn 13. And, and this story has, the, the murder of Till not only has such an important impact on the civil rights movement, it has an impact on these boys. And John Rivers tells me that his mother told him he said, when you're walking down a street and you see a white woman coming at you on the same side of the street, always cross the street and keep your head down, make no contact. And that these boys have to do this. And so what happens is Emmett Till, basically his story becomes so important to the to the story of civil rights. And then it's just a few months later when Rosa Parks refuses to give up her her seat to a white man in in Montgomery, Alabama, and and the civil rights story is on, and and the Cannon Street All Stars are 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 forgotten, and and the boys don't like talking about it because it makes them sad. It they when they talk about it, they cry, and and it, whether they're fifteen years old or twenties or thirties or forties or fifties, this is a sad moment in their life until the story is brought back to life and revived and they are and they are redeemed. Well, it's interesting that as these young men grew up, a number of them chose to leave Charleston. I would too. Um, there's nothing for them there. John Rivers went to New York when he was a teenager to stay with his uncle and aunt. He he, he could he, he could look people in the face. When he talked, he couldn't do that in Charleston. He, he made far more money uh, waiting tables in New York than he would have in Charleston. He did not have to live on the idea that at any moment there could be something awful could happen to him for, for you know, for maybe doing something fairly small or not doing anything at all. He didn't have to live in that fear. And John Rivers became incredibly successful. For those who stayed... Leroy Major became a teacher of young uh, Charlestonians. Oh, Leroy Major is a terrific guy, and he was a teacher. And in 2002, when they when they go to, when they return to Williamsport, he receives a letter from 
a boy in Pennsylvania. And the boy in Pennsylvania tells uh, Mr. Major that he had heard of the Cannon Street All-Stars and he that he believed that, that Mr. Major and the Cannon Street All-Stars should be remembered in the story of the civil rights movement, just like uh, Rosa Parks is. And, and, and Leroy Major, who was a big guy, and Leroy Major says it just it just made him break down. And all the, all those kids wanted to do was to play baseball. All they wanted to do was play baseball. It's something that you know every every kid needs to do, and it's just heartbreaking. Well, well, Chris, we've been talking about the kids wanted to play, but Morrison initially formed the team with the specific goal of it becoming an effort, a civil rights effort to break the color barrier. That's a great question. Uh, the idea, was he using the kids? And I've thought about this. I, I think the answer is yes. Um, the answer was the same reason why it was the Children's March, I believe in Alabama, where, the, where, where hundreds of kids march, and the feeling is that the cops are going to leave them alone, and the cops turn the, the fire hoses on them. I, I, I think he was. Why are you putting kids in harm's way by 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 taking them through the south up to Williamsport. Um and, and I think he I don't know if he thought it through. He certainly didn't think that way. But but adults are oftentimes, you know, using their children and it doesn't it certainly doesn't make it right, but it's a it's a heck of a good question. And by registering his team to play in that Charleston tournament he knew that there was going to be an answer one way or the other. Either they were going to get to play, which would break the barrier, or be denied. He knew that this was a provocative act. Chris, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Chris Lamb, the author of Stolen Dreams, the 1955 Cannon Street All-Stars, and Little League Baseball's Civil War. And right now, Chris, I'm going to cut to John Rivers, who was the shortstop on the 1955 Cannon Street All-Stars, and then we'll come back to you. And we have Mr. Rivers on the telephone from his business in Ecuador. Mr. Rivers, welcome to the journal. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. How old were you in 1955? I was uh, 12 when I took the trip, and... I had a birthday while we were in Williamsport. I turned 13. Wow. How about giving our listeners uh, a view of what it was like as a young black man growing up in Charleston, pre-teenage, teenage years? Well, it was um, two worlds, as you know, we, we all know, during Jim Crow segregation. And the challenges was always how to survive and, and and maintain some degree of uh, positive thoughts about oneself and one's worth as we matured in, in, in this system. The system was very um, unforgiving. Uh, it certainly did make an impact on a young man like myself, uh, growth and, and psyche uh, to, the, to the point where I began to realize early in uh, high school, because we started eighth grade when we got back, which is junior high school, they call it now, I realized that there was something about that system that was not agreeing with me at all, my mindset. And at some point, I knew that I had to uh, depart from that system. So early on, I started to realize that um, this is not for me. Jim Crow segregation is not for me. And uh, as soon as I get a chance to escape, I will. Thank God for the uh, support that we got from the adults in our neighborhoods and in our schools to keep us on the uh, right path to develop into productive uh, citizens. And without those, the influence they had on us, you know, pre preteen going into teen, a lot of us could not have, uh, would not have survived because the uh, system was very challenging and 
it, it, it begins to, you know, erode your, your self-confidence. All right. Well, you're talking about those folks who were not just looking after you, but trying to make sure that you had some opportunities. And one of those was the Black YMCA on Cannon Street, wasn't it? Absolutely. And that was a kind of a mecca for young black kids in that neighborhood. That's what got me started with baseball. I mean, uh, organized baseball. Of course, we we all played in our neighborhood. As a matter of fact, I was only three blocks away from the Y. When that facility opened up, it became a center for uh, positive development and growth for our, our black youth in, in the neighborhood. And it got a lot of use because it was open from you know early to, to late evening. It had a lot of programs, organized programs, basketball, boxing, wrestling. When the baseball program started, they started the program in 53, but mm-hmm. then they became uh, chartered in 54. Anyway, my, my buddy and I could not wait to go down, go to the Y and, and do tryout because the word came out there, tryouts for the Little League Baseball program. But they cleared out enough, enough of an area to basically um, toss the ball around to just kind of see what kind of skills we had. I didn't have much, but uh, neither did my partner, but we had the desire to play ball. And that's how I started um, uh, my, my interest in baseball, uh, on organized, organized baseball. But what? the Y, the, the men, the, also the, men, the members of the Y, the men the, the, who ran the Y, they were like, uh, you know, our extended family. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank God for them because they took care of us just like any our parents did. Um, it's the village concept of village to raise a child. I think it, it was the epitome of that. Well, you, you mentioned something interesting about the chartering because the Cannon Street Y Little League team actually got a charter from the National Little League because there was no racial clause in the National Little League Constitution or bylaws. And so they got this charter, which later on people would want to know, how did these folks get it? Well, that's that's how they <laughs> that's how that's how they got it. And and yeah. uh, and Danny Jones and Danny Jones basically accused Mr. Morrison of sabotaging him or backdooring him, right? Yeah. Because the way the story goes, uh, Danny had to because he was the uh, district state state representative for Little League in South Carolina, and. Um, Mr. Morrison was president of the Y, and, and he started the program. Mr. Morrison had to go through Danny to get the charter, okay? Mr. Morrison is, was an interesting character, and I did I know more about him now than I ever knew about him as a child. I had no idea who he was. And Chris has done such an excellent job in putting things in context in his book and, and the history of, of racial tension and problems in, in South Carolina, okay? But Mr. Morrison had an agenda that Danny didn't realize he had, right? And, of course, Morrison saw this opportunity not just about a charter. That was really the second plan, the charter. Mm -hmm. Uh, The master plan was to begin to attack segregation, right? And this was the crack in the door. Get the the charter and, and start the Little League program. And, of course, if Danny knew what Mr. Morrison had in mind, the big picture, he would have never issued that charter. In our conversation with Chris, he he pretty much talked about what happened from, you know, then on. Y'all were entered into the Little League playoffs with the idea that the best teams are going to end up in Williamsport, Pennsylvania for the Little League World Series, right? Absolutely. That was an interesting time. And I've, I've actually learned things from Chris's research that I didn't, I was unaware of. And some of my teammates uh, remember more than I, I do. Mr. Singleton, who was the manager for the All Stars, uh, notified us that we were going to see, or we were going to be going to the district playoff locally in Charleston. That's where you start. And there was there was jubilation, and everybody was so excited about the possibility of being able to play our way to Williamsport. And of course, the district, uh, that that whole hell broke, broke loose when the 
the, the application was made by Marston to enter, enter us into the playoff system. And we know what happened after that. That was um, the beginning of the end. The white teams refused to play us. And, and by default, we were officially or unofficially the uh, district champs. And district champ goes to the state at, at Greensville, South Carolina. And our, our, our coaches planned to send us to Greensville. And of course, Greenville heard about that, and again, they boycotted. And then when they boycotted, the entire state boycotted uh, playoff that year, as you all know. Then, of course, the next stop would have been, if we had played and won, the next stop would have been um, Rome, Georgia that year, as where the regional was being played. Our guys, our, our uh, coaches and Mr. Morrison said, well, we're going to Rome because we won the state by default because nobody would play us and uh, by forfeiture. And, of course, Rome went into the book and found this rule about a team has to play a game to be seated at, at the regional, and we didn't play. So they pulled the technicality on us say, well, you didn't play, so we can't seat you. But you young fellows, they say, okay, we're not going to let you go to Williamsport, but then Little League invites you all as a team to come to Williamsport in 1955. Yeah, well, that was the Constellation Prize, as Ted Koppel calls it. I don't know if you guys know about the Ted Koppel interview on Nightline, but our 50th anniversary, Ted Koppel interviewed us, and he labeled it as the Constellation Prize from Little League to have us come as honorary guests of Little League Incorporated, but not to play. So, you know, bittersweet. Uh, we were excited about the trip, of course. And there was some expectation and hope that we would, if we got there, we would play. They would let us play. Of course, that did not happen. We got there, but the excitement was uh, overwhelming, right? The, the experience was overwhelming. We had a bunch of 12-year-olds, you know, who'd never been that far, 600, 700 miles, of course, on a school bus. But it was so exciting for us to just experience that uh, that that uh, that place, Williamsport. I call it baseball heaven, you know, for little kids. We were treated just like the other players that were there from other teams. We stayed in the same dormitory at uh, college, uh, like coming college in Williamsport with the rest of the teams. We uh, ate with them. We did everything with them but we did not play. So, you know, you mentioned you ate with them, and that's that Chris tells us in this book. You were able to sit down and have a meal with white baseball players yep. sitting across the table from them, something you would not be yep. able to do in your hometown, Charleston, South Carolina. Absolutely. And it was it was um, strange. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can imagine being up and close and personal, other than working for white people in Charleston as kids, you know, we would take groceries for white people. We would cut, cut grass, clean yards and all that. Um, but to be on a social level where you at sharing a table and a meal was just surreal. It was surreal. Uh, but it gave us, it opened our eyes to a new experience that one, we did see the value in actually having that experience to change change minds, okay? Change our minds and also change the minds of white, white people. All right. John Rivers, who was the shortstop on the Cannon Street All-Stars in 1955, I want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences and best of luck to you down in Ecuador. Right now, Chris, back to you. Part of this story is these kids by the mid-1950s are going to be able to know that there are black baseball players, Jackie Robinson and South Carolina's own Larry Doby. Uh, so it's no longer, at least at the professional level, no longer a white world. Right. They have hopes. Um, Emmett Till was a baseball player. Uh, you know, every, 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 every black kid at that time, every white kid, but particularly every black kid wants to be Jackie Robinson 
by the 1955, they they wanted to be Willie Mays or or they wanted to be Don Newcomb or they wanted to be something. But 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 what happens is that baseball has given them a tunnel to freedom, has given them a tunnel to success. That that there is a hope that through baseball, I can experience I can experience the American dream. And that is why baseball is so important to the story of America and the story of the civil rights movement. And this is why the Cannon Street story is so important because these boys grew up, their fathers telling them, you can be the next Jackie Robinson. And they would, and they would follow Jackie Robinson. 1955, as it turned out, two months after they gave that was the only World Series that Jackie Robinson won, where Brooklyn Dodgers won the World Series in 1955. And, and, that, was a, and that was Black America's World Series. All right. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Chris Lamb, the author of Stolen Dreams, the 1955 Cannon Street All-Stars and Little League Baseball Civil War. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you learned something from today's journal. Talking with John Rivers, a young black man growing up in segregated Charleston, he was a key player, literally, as the shortstop on the 1955 Cannon Street All-Stars, and Chris Lamb captured that moment for these young men and South Carolina and America in 1955. An interesting story, a sad story, about young boys who wanted to play baseball. And because of the color line in the American South in 1955, that was not possible. It's part of our history that we need to remember and not sweep under the rug. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.